I want to thank Dirk this morning. He pulled off quite an amazing feat. All he knew was the scripture reading for today and the title of the sermon, and he's put so to put together so well a liturgy that complemented what we'll be going over today. Um, he's good job, Dirk. <laughs> Uh, If you turn with me today to our sermon text, it's going to be Genesis chapter 3. That's Genesis chapter 3. Today we're going to consider the entire chapter in this first book of the Bible. Um, Just to give you a preview of where I'm going to be going in the um, pulpit supply time that I'm giving, um, the next few times I'm up here, I'm going to be walking us through the Old Testament from a covenantal perspective, looking at all of God's covenants in the Old Testament and also, as always, looking at the Old Testament through a uh, historic redemptive perspective. So today we're going to start with that um, first tragic story in human history, um, Genesis chapter 3. Let's read the Word of God, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So so the woman saw that the tree was, was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you, above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your lives. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Your husband, uh, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust 
you shall return. Go in prayer. Our Lord, our Lord of heaven and earth, our creator, our preserver, our benefactor, our teacher, as we open this volume of your word where we may read and consider your mighty works, we thank you that this day you have spread before us the fuller pages of your revelation, that in them may we see what you would have us do, what it is that you require of us, what it is that you have done for us, what you have promised us what you have given us in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we go through your word today, that we would have a fuller knowledge of his salvation and our deliverance from sin and our bearing of his image and our enjoying of his presence and our being upheld by his spirit. Let us not live uncertain of who we are and where we are going. Well, anyone who has ever found themselves in a serious discussion about human nature has most likely heard the often repeated mantra that people are basically good. Now, if such a statement would have any validity, an explanation would have to be given for the undeniable universality of sin and its consequences that we see in the world around us. To anyone paying proper attention to our world today, it becomes quite obvious that all is not well. Turn on the news or visit any of the popular social media platforms or just pay close attention to what's going on around us. And it's easy to see that we're living living in the midst of constant chaos. Something is seriously wrong. We found ourselves living in a world filled with suffering, filled with genocide and the murder of the unborn, a world where it seems that the good guys very seldom win. A world where the realities of unjust wars, famine, sickness, and death are constantly present. Today in our own country, we're dealing with rising crime rates and violence that is more and more left unpunished. The institutions that were put in place to bring justice to the innocent and thwart the hands of the evildoers are so often riddled with corruption and incompetence. And as if things couldn't get any worse, those sword-wielding government authorities who were told about in Romans 13, whose power is given to them by God, those given the sword to carry out the wrath of God against the evildoers, are more and more using that authority bestowed upon them to protect and promote all manner of wickedness. Seeing the depravity all around us, we often tend to think that things are so worse, worse now than they've ever been, and that the end of civilization must be near. But I tend to think that's not the case. Any diligent study of human history reveals to us that things have always been this way. There's truly nothing new under the sun. The prevailing elitist and academic wisdom of today would have us believe that people are basically, that people are basically good, but it's society that is to blame for the wicked actions of man. They argue that it is our environment that produces the unrighteousness within us, not our own corrupted nature. There's a serious flaw in that analysis. It fails to address how society has become so corrupted in the first place. If people were basically good, we should expect at least a small percentage of societies to produce produce righteousness free 
from um, systemic sin. But that's not what we see today. In his timeless work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis so eloquently addresses the flow of human history, stating in Book 2, Chapter 3, that is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions are devised. But each time something goes wrong, some fatal, fatal flaw always brings the selfish and the cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. It seems to start up and, and uh, set up all right and run a few yards, but then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. That is what Satan has taught the humans. Not only are we constantly confronted, confronted with the re- reality of sin in others and its effect on our world, but if we're honest with ourselves, we come to realize that, the, uh, that, that a corrupted nature dwells in each and every one of us. To use myself as an example, imagine for a second that there was a projector up here that would project on the wall the Carl Richard show, featuring of all my not-so-fine moments, all those times when I gave in to depraved temptations, all those times that I twisted the truth with my words, all those times that I lost my temper and lashed out, all those times that I did violence to others for nothing more than to boost my own ego. Brothers and sisters, I can assure you today that if such a film were presented to you, I would be forced to run and hide in shame. But for the grace of God, I would never be able to stand before you again. Is there anyone here today who would invite such scrutiny? Is there anyone here today who would not shudder in fear at the thoughts that we've had just in the last 48 hours flashed up on the screen for all to read? Who could stand? Who of us would not run and cower in shame? Anyone who would proclaim that people are basically good has obviously never taken the time to diligently examine themselves. If they did, they would see any such notion as laughable in light of who they are. Am I being too harsh? I fear sometimes I'm not being harsh enough. How could I ever articulate how far far short I fall of the Creator and His holy standard? Loved ones, I ask you today, how did we get here? How has paradise become so lost to us? Well, we have before us today in today's scripture, Genesis chapter 3, God's revelation about how this fallen world came to be. And today, as we walk through one of the earliest chapters written in human history, I want to focus on three aspects of what God has revealed to us. First, we will look at the corruption. Secondly, we will look at the covenant. And lastly, we will look at the curse. Before we jump into today's text, it's important to take note of what has happened thus far in redemptive history. We are still in the garden here in Genesis chapter 3, and we may be tempted to think that so far in our Bibles, not much has happened. But that temptation would be a mistake. In fact, a tremendous amount has already happened before we come to Genesis chapter 3. We see in chapters, chapter 1 that God creates the heavens and the earth and he fills his creation with plants and vegetation, with all the birds of the air and the great creatures of the sea, and with the beast and the creeping things of the field. Then we see that God creates an image bearer for himself in the form of man, 
And as God's image bearer, man is to reflect God's glory before all creation. As God's image bearer, man was given dominion over all the animals and fish and livestock that inhabited the earth. In chapter 2, we get a more detailed narrative of God creating the first man. We learn that the name's man is Adam, and that God creates a woman to be Adam's companion and helper. And by being created as God's image bearer, Adam, by necessity, is obligated to God. As God's image bearer, Adam is to imitate God. Thus, God institutes a bilateral covenant between himself and Adam. Not only is Adam to imitate God and reflect his glory, he is also obligated to keep the garden and to righteously exercise his dominion by guarding God's creation. We also see in chapter 2 that God gives Adam what we can refer to as a covenant test, forbidding him from eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Adam's reward for keeping God's covenant is eternal life, and his penalty for failure is death. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This covenant formed out of the first two chapters of the Bible is known in Reformed theology as the covenant of works. There are conditions that Adam had to meet in order to receive his eternal reward. And there was a steep penalty for failure. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to the crafty serpent. Now there's been some debate as to whether the serpent was in fact Satan here. Some commentators point to the fact that Genesis chapter 3 never really identifies the serpent as Satan. However, they don't look further into their Bibles because if we look in the book of Revelations in the New Testament, Satan is is clearly identified as the serpent. Um, uh, In John's Revelation chapter 12 verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Again, John in Revelations chapter 20, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And what is the very first thing that Satan does in tempting the woman? He uses his very first utterance to to the human race to twist the word of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? Seems like that old ancient phrase is uttered quite often in our churches today. Did God actually say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God actually say that we were created male and female? Did God actually say that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth? Does God's word actually tell us who is qualified for leadership and ecclesiastical office within the church? Does uh, God's word actually tell us that as members of the church, we should, should, should submit to those leaders, to our elders? The woman goes on to correct Satan in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. You see, Eve gets the first part right. But notice what she does at the end of verse 3. She adds, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Going back to chapter, chapter through, 2, we can review and, and see that does God ever forbid Adam or the woman from touching the tree's fruit? The woman does something that's just as dangerous as twisting God's word. She adds to it. 
And we still haven't learned today, have we? We see the same sort of thing in mainstream Christianity today. We're in where, I ask you, in God's word are we told that all we have to do is say a prayer and ask Jesus into our heart and we will be saved. Where in scripture are we told that it is an obligation of the Christian concerning worship services that we are to attend one and we are to serve in one? I was actually in a congregation that taught that. Adding to God's word. And that is why it's so important for us today as believers to guard the word of God. Just as in the garden, the word of God is constantly twisted and added to. And it has its intended effect of leading believers astray. And when we hear these distortions taking place, we should correct them. I ask you today, does it make you angry when you hear God's truth being twisted? It should. And if as members of the church, as elders and deacons, we don't defend the word of God, who will? Will the secular culture defend it for us? Some of you may be saying to yourselves, well, I don't know enough to correct someone else as to what the Bible teaches. Why can't we just go along and get along? Well, let me tell you why today. 1 Peter chapter 3.15 But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and grace. Our Jude, the brother, brother of Jesus, writing in verse chapter 3, I find it necessary to write to you, appealing to, to, to contend for the faith that was once delivered to all of the saints. Not knowing our Bibles, not knowing enough about our Bibles is no excuse. If you feel that way, then you should set it up on yourself to learn more. Yes, parts of the Bible can be hard to understand, but that's why we are a confessional church and we hold to standards. We hold to a confession of faith. Found within the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism is an extensive summary of what the Bible teaches, organized so that it's quite convenient to find the answer to any questions we may have. But you're not left alone in this. As members of the church, you should hold your elders responsible for ensuring that believers are properly catechized in the doctrines of the faith. You know that Wednesday night Bible study at the Andropons or Sunday school might be a great place to start. Back to our text in verses 4 and 5. We have the serpent directly contradicting God. You will not surely die, he says to Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, as we're told in verse 1, Satan is very crafty. He knows where to attack us. Although Adam and the woman lived in the garden and walked where God walked among them and, that, and created to be his image bearer, made to reflect his glory and a place where God had given them everything in abundance that they would ever need, the enemy tells them that they can have more. Instead of focusing on what God had given them, he focuses on the one prohibition. Satan deceives our first parents with the very foundation of every last false religion in the world. He puts before them that by through their own efforts, they can rise up and be like God. They could have things their way. It wasn't about what God had promised. This is about what they could do. Just reach out and take the fruit, and you will be like God. He convinced them that God, through his divine action, was holding them back from being all that they could be. This was more temptation than the woman could bear. 
She, she desired what the serpent was offering. She thought that it was good, and she takes the fruit and eats. She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Her husband, Adam, who was God's image bearer, given dominion over the garden and everything in it. He was supposed to keep the garden. He should have done what any good Cajun would have done. Upon seeing the snake, he would have said, Eve, cook some rice. We're going to make a sauce with that. We're going to make a gravy. But he does nothing of the sort. He goes along with his wife in her covenant with Satan. He breaks his covenant with God and he eats the fruit. And the eyes of both of them were open. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Throughout our Old Testament, nakedness is is associated with weakness, with shame, with humility. And our fallen parents quickly realized that their their shame, and they realized it would need to be covered. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they covered themselves. They had broken God's covenant. They had committed, as R.C. Sproul says, cosmic treason. And the curse of sin and death was upon them. But not just upon themselves. You see, Adam, as our federal head, was our representative in the covenant of works. And his failure affected the entire human race. Paul, writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and and, and death through sin, so that spread to all men because all have sinned. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith teaches in chapter 6, article 2, by this, by this sin, Adam and Eve fell from their original righteousness and communed with God and so became dead to sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of body and soul. You see, Adam and Eve were created in a condition that they could have fulfilled the covenant of works. They were created righteous. Westminster Confession of Faith goes on in our, uh, chapter 6, article 3. They being the root of mankind, the guilty of this sin was imputed and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by original generation. You see, as Adam's posterity, we are, all, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Each and every one of us, for none of us is righteous. And our very wills are in bondage to sin. Adam and his wife were so ashamed and humiliated when they heard the Lord approaching and that they did what any sinner would do at the thought of God's presence. They hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And there's Adam the world's first husband, trying to pass the buck to his wife. The woman you gave, gave to me gave me the fruit, and I ate. Next, the woman's response. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam passes the buck to the woman, and the woman passes the buck to the serpent. Aren't we the same way today? Don't we still do the same thing when we fall into sin? Do we not so often look for someone else or something to blame? Maybe it was our upbringing, our environment, the pressure at work, the pressure to get ahead, the bad influence of our peers, society. Sometimes we must say, well, the government gave me no other option. Our sin being so grotesque before a holy God that we cower at the thought of having to take responsibility for it. 
in the midst of such brokenness, in the midst of paradise loss, God then speaks a word of promise. And that brings us to our second point today, the covenant. The first thing that God does is to break the sinful covenant between Satan and the woman. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. By his grace, God removes the woman from her her alliance with Satan. This will not be the end of her, but a new beginning. It would have been perfectly just for God at that point to pour out his wrath on Adam and the woman and into the human race, condemning us all to hell. But that's not what he does. Secondly, he puts enmity between the serpent's offspring and the offspring of the woman. And in doing so, he creates two distinct peoples. One is that covenant community that he's going to set apart for himself. And the other, he leaves to themselves to continue on their path to destruction as the offspring of the devil. This again is signified in the woman's giving name, a name which we have not heard until now. We can start now to call her her name, Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Thirdly, the Lord gives us that great announcement of his redemptive plan. The announcement that out of the seed of the woman there would not only come a redeemed people, but out of the seed, the same seed would come one who, although he would suffer at the hands of the enemy, would ultimately crush the head of Satan, thereby freeing God's chosen from the grip of sin and death. Genesis 3.15, that glorious passage. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first gospel promise. The curse of the fall, you see, would be undone by a second Adam who would return to fulfill the covenant of works that was broken in the garden. He would live a life of a perfect obedience to God's law, succeeding where Adam failed. Again, the Apostle Paul writing in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And today that life-given spirit was manifest. And the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer that was promised from the very beginning, at the moment of the fall, promised to us to rescue us from the tyranny of the devil. Now, it's important to note here two very distinct differences between the covenant made in Genesis 3.15 and the previous covenant of works made in the garden. The covenant made in chapters 1 and 2, which, we, which is referred to as, a, as the covenant of works, is what we call a bilateral covenant. It was between Adam and God, and both had responsibilities to fulfill the covenant. Remember, Adam was placed under obligation to God, and if Adam succeeded, God's, God promised him eternal life. But what's different about the covenant made in Genesis 3.15 is that it is a unilateral covenant. God does all the work. It's God who does the, the rescuing. Adam is not placed under any obligation. There is nothing for man to do. God will rescue him. There is no part in that rescue that Adam will play. That is why we call God's covenant here in Genesis 3.15 the covenant of grace. It's not something that we earn. It's something that is given to us. Paul writing to the Romans again in Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace 
of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free, free, free gift is not a, like the result of one man's sin. For, judge, judge, for, judgment followed one tres, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For it is not because of one man's trespasses. For, because, for if because one man's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in, in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. And ever since that great announcement of God's promised one to come, the serpent has been trying to thwart the will of the father by destroying the seed of the woman. Immediately we see in Genesis chapter 4 after today's text, we see the enemy trying to thwart God's plan by having Cain murdering Abel. See, he, he was trying to figure out who this promised one would be. After God had entered into a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would make a great nation out of Abraham and give him offspring, we see Abraham's wife Sarah taken into Pharaoh's household. But God intervenes, afflicting Pharaoh. David, from whose offspring God would establish the kingdom that would last forever, is, con- is constantly pursued, pursued by, his own en- by his enemies, even pursued by his own son. Upon hearing about the birth of the Messiah, King Herod, sent men to kill all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under. And at every turn, the plans of Satan were undone by God's providence. And in the fullness of time, our champion came. And he crushed the head of the serpent, declaring once and for all on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. That battle that had been raging throughout redemptive history had been won by our promised Redeemer, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as those of us today who have been called to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who rest in his finished work, waiting for his return, Yes, we are redeemed. Yes, we are justified before the Almighty God. But we still live and work in that time between the already and the not yet. And the curse of not only the sin of others, but the curse of our own sin is still with us today. That brings us to our last point, the curse. To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, for you were dust to dust you will return. Loved ones, I ask you today, why are things the way they are? They're the way they are because as a, as a fallen people, we're living in a fallen and broken world. The consequences of sin are always before us. If you ever witnessed a woman giving birth, you're well aware that pain is a very w- real and terrible thing. We have to constantly work under unpleasant conditions in order to provide for our basic needs. They're not provided for us like Adam in the garden. And the work is often difficult. The work is often mundane and spiritually draining. Sometimes we sit there and wonder if we're serving the greater good at all. 
and as those chosen for Jesus Christ and set aside for his purpose. Living in this present evil age, we find ourselves with one foot still stuck in Adam, weighed down by the curse. And as we continue to struggle with indwelling sin in our lives, we can become so tempted to look back at that covenant of works, to look at ourselves thinking that we just need to try harder, thinking that all we need to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps is just a little more effort, a little more, a better plan of things to do. We often turn inward looking at ourselves and what can we accomplish as a means of fulfillment and comfort. And when we do that, our gaze is turned from Jesus Christ. We fall for that ancient deception. The serpent comes and he whispers in our ear, don't focus on what God has done. Focus on what you can do. Focus on what you become. You can be all that you can be, want to be. You can even be like God. You can be the master of your own destiny. It's all about you. From that lie comes all of the misery, sin that has haunted human history throughout the ages. Going back to Lewis here in his mere Christianity, puts it so eloquently. What Lewis writes, what Satan put into the head of our remote ancestors with the idea that they could be like gods. They could set out on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, empires, Slavery, that long, terrible story, loved ones, of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. So where shall we find hope in such a, such a time, in such a world? Where shall we find shelter as we wade through this veil of tears? Where shall we look? Loved ones, look to the one, look to the promise made in that covenant of grace all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the one who came into the world and lived a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. Succeeding where our first parent Adam failed. He was the one who went blameless to the cross at Calvary. Taking taking upon himself the wrath due to us because of our sin. He was the one who rose from the dead crushing the head of the serpent. Conquering the curse of sin and death for us. He is the one that sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And he is the one that at the end of this fading evil age will come again to judge the living and the dead. And he will wipe away every teardrop from the eyes of those who trust in him. Amen. God, we thank you for your holy revelation. We thank you for this 